Welcome to Fortress on a Hill. I'm Henry. I'm Danny. I'm Kagan. We're three leftist veterans that aim to expose the reality of the U.S. military's multiple wars abroad and to illuminate the damage military service does to Americans. American presidents throughout U.S. history have used American military and diplomatic power to force regime change of democratically elected governments around the world. Most veterans come from families vested in prior service, and American generals choose their own, ensuring diversity of thought never interferes with American warmongering. How can we stand by and do nothing while our military kills and destroys lives the world over, while telling Americans that all this death and destruction protects them from terrorists when nothing could be more false? Fortress on a Hill aims to change that. All right, everybody. Welcome to uh, this is special live edition of Fortress on a Hill. We have uh, a very special guest with us today, um, someone that is is quite well known throughout alternative media, and and talks and and dissects so many very important issues that the mainstream media does not. Uh, along with a a, a a liberal amount of of comedy and sarcasm to go with that. But that's how we get people to uh, to see things that they don't otherwise see. So, uh, Lee Camp, thank you so much for joining us on Fortress on a Hill. Do the sorry, your mic was muted there for a oh, second. The thanks a lot for having me. <laughs> Welcome. <Yeah>. Welcome. <laughs> so. Uh, out here. Lee is the uh, head writer and host of the national TV show Redacted Tonight with Lee Camp on RT America. He's a former contributor to The Onion, former staff humor writer for the Huffington Post, and his web series Moment of Clarity has been viewed by millions. He's toured the country and the world with his fierce brand of stand-up comedy, and George Carlin's daughter Kelly said Lee is one of the few comics keeping her father's torch lit. Uh, Bill Hicks' brother Steve said Lee is one of only a handful with Bill's message and passion, which I wholeheartedly agree with. Um, Lee is also a co-host with Eleanor Goldfield of the podcast Common Censor, um, which just dissects uh, many of these topics that we're going to uh, go over this evening, and also um, the podcast Government Secrets with uh, Graham Elwood. Um, and if you would like to contribute to his uh, his work, his his comedy, getting him to be able to be seen by as many people as possible, go to LibraPay.com forward slash Lee Camp, and I'll have some some banner reminders to see it later. So, but with that uh, uh, <laughs> necessary introduction, there, Lee, um, how are you doing this evening? Not bad. Thank you for the intro. I should hire you as my agent. That was excellent. <laughs> anytime anytime good to talk with you <laughs> so um oh and before before i forget we um my uh my friend friend of the podcast is here with us uh nate hankis and uh, a little bit later in the stream we're going to talk about a project that he has upcoming but he uh was absolutely dying to jump in here and, and chat with lee and and he's gonna do that with us Nate, how are you doing? I'm, I'm doing great. I, uh, the only thing I want to ask Lee tonight is how he got radicalized. 
Ah. Well, we, we, we will, we will definitely come to that. Good. Um, Leah, I had, I had one thing I wanted to discuss with you before I ask a, a few, few more uh, in-depth questions about yourself. Yeah. And that is, uh, I wanted to talk about Mike Gravel. Um, uh, Mike Gravel, for people who, many people listening will probably recognize his name. For those of you who don't, he uh, passed away recently. He is a former two-term senator from Alaska. Um, he is much more famously or notoriously known, depending on who you ask, uh, being the senator that read the Pentagon Papers into the congressional record, um, which we just actually, actually today, right now, right, today is the 50th anniversary of the day that he did that. He ensured that that vital information would uh, make it to um, make it to the American people and, and found and and. That was absolutely something that that our country needed at that time. Um, Lee, tell me, tell me your thoughts about uh, Mike Gravel. Yeah, an incredible individual, and you know, I, I realize uh, as we get farther and farther away from the actual moment that it happened, some people might not know the Pentagon Papers revealed really the truth about Vietnam, what was really going on there. Uh, that there there was no real. Uh, you know, plan that other than just kill as many Vietnamese as possible. Uh, many things like that came out in those papers, and it was quite a scandal when it was revealed. It was obviously leaked by uh, Daniel Ellsberg, who has become, you know, famous for that. Uh, but Mike Gravel was the only senator who was willing to read it into the record so that it couldn't be censored, so that it would be in the permanent record. And uh, Ellsberg went to a lot of other senators who all refused, who refused to have that kind of backbone, that kind of, uh, I guess you should say gonads, because both men and women have gonads. Uh, so uh, very impressive. But I did get to meet him once. I was performing at, at some conference or event, and uh, he was running for president at the time. And uh, I didn't talk to him, but I shook his hand. Um, so... Uh, a very impressive guy, but then people may know him more recently as uh, the presidential candidate who was really willing to uh, go after our war machine, go after our our empire of endless war uh, on that debate stage with Obama and Hillary and Biden all standing next to him. And one of the most famous clips that's been making the rounds, they were talking about foreign policy in regards to Iran and not much has changed. Uh, and he said, you know, these people scare me. These people on this stage scare me. They're talking about nuclear war with Iran that would not just kill millions of innocents in Iran. It would kill millions of people in America, likely, if it ended up in a nuclear tit for tat. Uh, and, you know, he was willing to say that in front of them and they acted, oh, you know, they laughed or acted like it was ridiculous. And for saying those type of things, he was sidelined. He was uh, the mainstream media did not mention him. Uh, in many ways, similar treatment to Bernie Sanders. Uh, he was he was not allowed to get the, the interviews on mainstream media that that allow you to garner larger percentages. They did their best to keep him out of the debates, but he was able to get into the earlier ones. And, you know, it's it's our system is meant to kind of purge or push out those people, even former senators who are willing to speak the truth on these issues. Absolutely. No, I um, and, and also something that that is uh, for anybody wanting to learn more about him, that um, the Gravel Institute 
is still still very much a thing. They have a YouTube channel and make videos on a variety of anti-war, anti-imperialist type topics. So if you uh, folks, if you have the chance to go and uh, check that out, please do. Um, no, I, I feel I feel very much that that his his choice to do that, his choice to read it into the record, should be should be seen in many ways as as noteworthy as Dan, Dan Ellsberg's choice to leak the papers in the first place, because they both had to know, despite there being a little bit different risks, given that Gravel was a senator, um, what the feed, what the what the payback was going to be, how the empire was going to bite back and bite back so severely, and they took those risks knowing that. And I think he is an absolutely fantastic addition to um, the the very few anti-war heroes that we have that have reached those levels of government. Yeah. And um, I hope that his, I hope that his uh, I hope that people remember him and remember the sacrifices that he uh, that he made. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely patriotic to put your neck out on the line for your country like that. Absolutely. And a lot of times like the war machine will twist it. So that doesn't seem patriotic, but it truly is for the good of the country. Well, one, one, one other thing that I wanted to mention about him specifically is that he actually served as a counterintelligence agent in the U.S. Army before he got involved in politics. And I know that that experience really opened his eyes to the, the methods and mannerisms of the empire, so to speak, understanding how information gets classified, overclassified. Um, you know, just in order to be able to be hid. And of course, uh, he and he, he was serving during the Korean War, but he was stationed in Germany. And so I'm, I'm sure his view to that whole debacle and all the death and destruction that came from it was very, very, um, it was a very big part of why he ended up doing what he did. So Lee, um, I want to know more about you. I want to know more about... Um, how you came to to what uh, where you are uh, in your life today? Um, can you uh, give us give us a little taste, please? <laughs> uh, yeah, it, well, it started as just wanting to be a comedian. I uh, I didn't start off as uh, you know as you as you as you termed it radicalized. I didn't start off as a radical. Uh, I started off as a kid that wanted to make people laugh. Wanted to initially write comedy. I started writing at about age 12. And uh, then at 17, 18, I started uh, wanting to perform it, even though I'd never been on a stage before. And so I started going to like open mic nights and stuff like that. But, you know, back then it was, I was just, I just wanted to be like Jerry Seinfeld. You know, I just wanted to be telling jokes uh, about how the candy bar doesn't come out of the vending machine when you push the button. And it you know it was it was not making any kind of larger point it was just trying to be funny and so that that's kind of how it started just trying to get the laugh and then i moved to new york after college to uh, to do just that to become a comedian and i became more and more uh, political caring more about what we were seeing in our in our lives in our world and you know some of that had to do with the iraq war uh, that kind of 
woke me up a little because I, I started asking the questions that you need to ask in order to realize that these wars are not based on helping anybody or bringing democracy or, you know, those kind of uh, bullshit reasons they give you. It, 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 you got to start asking questions. And so, uh, you know, that, uh, that attack on Iraq definitely, uh, and, and it kept going for years, obviously, uh, got me to start reading more and, and learning more and, uh, you know, programs that unfortunately are not as good as they used to be, but like Democracy Now! helped wake me up. Uh, Chomsky, who I interviewed for the first time, actually, this past week, uh, reading him when I was, uh, when I was 22, 23, uh, helped me get outside of kind of that, that mainstream media brainwashing. Um, it, it, you really do think that like, even if you don't believe every word on CNN, you figure most of it is essentially the truth. But once you've really informed yourself and seen outside of it, you can pick apart just about every sentence they say uh, as being some kind of propaganda. Sometimes the propaganda is so deep and we've been so brainwashed by our cultural system that they don't even realize some of it. Uh, and then on top of that, you have just the choices of what they're covering. I mean, we mentioned Mike Gravel. Not covering Mike Gravel is a significant choice when he was running for president. Uh, talking about, you know, Trump, in my view, was very dangerous in a lot of ways. However, by covering him 90% of the time, what are they ignoring? Well, they're ignoring everything else that continues unfettered, unimpeded, the, the environmental collapse, the, the, the oceans are filling with plastic, the, the pollution of the waterways, pollution of the air, the, all of that is not being covered. So that is a choice. That is a propaganda choice to not cover that stuff, um, along with so many other things, prison industrial complex, uh, police brutality, et cetera, et cetera. So while, you know, Wall Street's continued exploitation of your average American, uh, it is a choice to cover all that over, to put up a smoke screen and say, no, all that matters is what Ted Cruz said yesterday. And you, once you see beyond that, it's kind of the type of thing where you can't, you can't back off it. You can't unsee it. You know, it is, it is seeing through the matrix and you can't unsee it. And uh, I started putting more and more of it into my standup, uh, those kind of topics, those kind of ideas. And I, I very much wanted to have, at that point, a stand-up act that mattered. I wanted to be on stage. If I was going to do something, I mean, there's very few things in America that are left, performance venues, where someone gets on stage and speaks their mind. Because, you know, performing a play is not speaking your mind, it's reading a script. And playing music can sometimes be your mind, but really that's kind of covered over in enough layers that people could be dancing to a song they disagree with and not necessarily know, even know it. Uh, so there's almost nothing except stand-up comedy where people get on a stage and people come in a live audience and want to hear what that person is thinking at that moment. And so it just felt like such a, a gift to be on that stage. And I wanted to use it for something more important than, you know, why, uh, why are airline seats so small? And so it just kind of kept growing like that. And then the, the career I had planned or saw in my head of, of being on TV and doing comedy specials on Comedy Central and stuff like that, basically slowly evaporated over the span of a few years because they don't want you on TV doing those things. There is politics on like Comedy Central, but it is a specific brand of politics. It is 
usually already famous comedians talking about politics in a way that still fits inside the Overton window, that still is kind of inside your allowable corporate thought points, talking points. And uh, and so what I was doing was not acceptable. And you know, luckily I came along in a time when YouTube was a little more free and they'd actually allow things to grow organically. And uh, moment of clarity, my video series became popular and uh, I went from there. I got a show on, on RT America, which is unfortunately one of the only uh, global and, and national networks that will allow me complete and utter freedom that has never told me what to say. I write all my own words and it, that type of thing does not exist in our corporate media landscape. It is not a thing. And there are career graveyards filled with people or their careers filled with uh, people who, who spoke out, who even once they achieved great fame, people like Phil Donahue, Jesse Ventura, you know, they, they get up to a point and they are hugely well-known, hugely famous, hugely successful, and they start speaking out against war. And then MSNBC or wherever is like, you know what? You're not, you're not right for us. So that's that's my rant on that. <laughs> um, someone in the chat reminded me that you are a direct descendant of Robert E. Lee, and I'm curious about how that history has played a role in your life. I'm sure it's something that at some point you you took some time and and traced that stuff back, wanted to understand more, and I'm I'm, I'm curious as to. What, what did you find about yourself in, in, in hearing that history? Yeah, on my father's side, I am, it's kind of uh, old American colonist. It is, you know, we, we have Nellie Washington's hand towel. Nellie was Washington's niece. We have her hand towel and they actually signed it back then because these were fine, nice hand towels that were expensive for the time. So it's got her signature on it and it's framed in our house. and. Uh, yeah, descended from uh, John Marshall, Supreme Court Justice, and Robert E. Lee. And then also probably the most important one is uh, descended directly from Walter Camp, who basically, and he's called the godfather of American football. He invented American football. So uh, that, that's the really important one. The others, you know, forget them. But uh, So, yeah, it, it, it is kind of crazy. And, and in, in some regards, I, you know, I grew up in a combination of Washington, D.C., then we moved to Richmond, Virginia, the capital of the Confederacy. And I was like 12 years old before I found, before anyone bothered to tell me that the South had lost the war. Uh, <laughs> I, I knew about the Civil War. Uh, I knew I was named after Robert E. Lee, but I thought, well, he wouldn't name me after a loser, so we must have won. Um, but yeah, it's you know, it's kind of crazy in that regard. But I'd like to think not, maybe not with Robert E. Lee, you know, but uh, fighting for owning slaves. But uh, with the others, I'd like to think that that maybe there was some voice in their head that knows that the most patriotic thing you can do is speak out for the truth. Is you know, call America to account for our current sins and our past sins and try and make people informed. And And I hope there would be a piece of them that would see that as uh, the best thing you can do in a country like it is today, even though they could never imagine uh, what insanity we'd be involved in. Um, so, you know, it may, maybe some people could say my, my lineage is contradictory, but 
I, you know, I've never really viewed it that way. So you, uh, you shared with me, um, you shared with me about your dad, your, uh, your dad's book, um, who was a, uh, an army psychiatrist who served in Vietnam. And I got to tell you, man, I, I'm floored by some of the things that he shared about the, the, the clarity and the honesty in a government document, essentially in a, in a, a place where you, you generally wouldn't find that you would think that someone someone was check, checking what he was actually writing before it got published but the art with the military it can get lost entirely um and uh I, I can you tell us a little bit about your dad and just the how uh how his book how his time in vietnam came came across to you yeah, he uh, so yeah, army army doctor, psychoanalyst, and uh, in Vietnam for a year, and in the military for twenty years, and he, he you know, it as as time went on, I think he had the question a lot of people had in Vietnam, which you know he didn't he didn't he wasn't so radical that he thought uh, you know the. The, 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 pro, the protesters are necessarily right about everything with Vietnam, but he thought the military was getting it wrong. He was looking at the level of mental illness and PTSD and, and the, you know, people are self-medicating with drug abuse, which of course makes sense if you're put in that situation. And he was saying, we, this is the wrong way to do it. You know, what's being done to these young men and women. And he, you know, he was, under 40, I think, but he, he was older compared to 20 year olds. And so he just, it, he looked at it as like, they're getting the mental health of our military wrong and dealing with it wrong. And they're not, they're, you know, basically doctors would look over a, a, a soldier for, you know, 10 minutes and say, yeah, you're fit to go back out. Meanwhile, the guy is completely a wreck and completely uh, uh, mentally ill, at least in that moment, uh, dealing with the stress and the and, and how, how horrible things were. And they're just sent back out there. Uh, and, you know, and nowadays we see it with tour after tour after tour, not actually analyzing the, the mental health aspect in a, in a deeper way. And, 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 you know, it upset him and he, he didn't write this book for this book only came out five years ago and he didn't write it for 20 years or even start working on it for 20 years or whatever. Cause he thought th there's no way somebody else who maybe is more qualified won't write this. So, you know, someone who was there for three tours or whatever. And he, he kept waiting for somebody to write that book on mental health in the military, uh, specifically in Vietnam. And it never happened. So then he eventually decided, I guess it's me. And he started putting together this book and spent, you know, uh, 10 or 20 years on that book. And, uh, uh, and he wouldn't have had the records to be able to, to give the, for, you know, the first, uh, the, the, the actual source material, if it weren't for the fact that a few doctors held on to their records against orders, against commands, which were turn over all your records when you leave Vietnam. And then the military either has them hidden in some basement somewhere or they burn them all, who knows. But so if it weren't for, 
like two doctors being like, you know, I, these might be important and hanging on to them. You'd have no uh, source material for all of this. And the book couldn't be written. But luckily, he got some of it uh, with by these doctors going against their orders. And uh, it's it's, you know, pretty breathtaking uh, to, to read the true story of of uh, drug addiction, mental health uh, issues, PTSD, all of it that went on in Vietnam and continues to go on today, largely. And his name, if anyone wants to look it up, his name is Norman Camp, by the way. I'll make sure we uh, include some good notes so people can uh, find it, check it out if they'd, uh, if they'd like to. I, I found so much of what I would have been reading and I'm gonna finish every word of it. Um, dealing with the same issues that we dealt with in Iraq and that, you know, have been seen in Afghanistan. It just, it just continues in a different, a different format. Um, I had emailed you when we were, we were setting this up about, um, about the, the good uh, controlled substances versus the bad ones, the ones that, you know, that, that it's, that it's perfectly okay for soldiers and, and all the other troops to, to get entirely fucked up on alcohol. But, yeah all of these other things are, are, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like being cursed. And, you know, I, I actually, um, I don't think I mentioned this to you while we were chatting, but I was a, I was a drug investigator in the army for two years. Oh, really? And, and I, I spoke with soldiers a lot about their, um, about their substance abuse and in different ways. And the, the vast, I would say a great, a great many of them, um, said that I, I chose to do this, I'm speaking about marijuana here, that I chose to do this because I had no other choice. There was no other relief in some other way. And also it, it was also for a lot of them, it was a, it was a cry for help. Um, but uh, but to, to have that connection, to be able to go back and look at all of that information uh, about Vietnam is just incredible. I'm really, I'm, I'm, I'm learning so much and and like you said, you know, it was it was that was an incredible risk. If somebody knew that 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 the doctor who who actually held onto his records actually did that back in the day, I mean, these days it, it, no one would be able to prove anything. But the, the army would have just smashed them with every every institution that it possibly could have, simply on the idea that that people wanted to learn more. We're not even getting into quite to any war or any interventionist stuff we're just talking about trying to make things better for soldiers who are in this horrible situation um let me get my yeah. notes back here yeah absolutely um so i uh i got one question here that i wanted to uh throw out for you real quick um can lee camp speak on COINTELPRO pro with anti-imperialist and anti-capitalist movements and Biden declaring anti-capitalists as "quote unquote" domestic violence extremists. Yeah, Co. Most people probably know COINTELPRO was the program in the uh, '60s and maybe it went into the '70s of uh, you know infiltrating activist groups, uh, disrupting them, doing everything they could, finding reasons to arrest them, arresting them for small drug charges. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, there there's been clear evidence with Black Panthers and stuff of uh, the FBI, et cetera, putting out false pamphlets that looked like they were from some other group so that, uh, or some other person so that the groups would end up infighting, trashing each other. 
Um, it was all kind of every game you could come up with. Uh, and when it came out that COINTELPRO was a real program, it was kind of a scandal. It was like, oh my God, can you believe that our own government is involved in, in, in going after activists like this? And nowadays it's kind of just the norm. It's just it, like when these things come out, uh, you know, like all of the surveillance that Snowden revealed. And it, I, I mean, at least that one was got, got some media coverage, but a lot of this stuff hardly gets even coverage now. I mean, uh, CIA's operation, uh, I believe it was Mockingbird, where they infiltrated news media is not a, it doesn't need to be a secret program anymore. MSNBC just says, now let's go to the former head of the CIA. And that's just standard operating procedure for our media. So a lot of the things that used to be scandalous are now considered just our government, uh, the way it works, which is uh, horrific. <laughs> and it should, should piss off everyone. Like we should still be pissed off every time we find out that our government is infiltrating groups. You know, the extent, by, by the end of, you know, the, after a few months at uh, Occupy Wall Street, it, it, about a third of the people down there were either plainclothes cops or FBI or, or whatever other agency, DHS. And it's like, I mean, the efforts that our government goes to, to destroy our own citizens um, almost exclusively peaceful activists is amazing. It's it's tremendous, and it makes them uh, into a, a it, it, like it turns it into a battle against our own citizens, which again should piss off everyone. Uh, and yeah, what that person was referencing is a uh, there, there's been some new documents that basically group anti-capitalist activists as like violent extremists, which you can be, uh, there are economics professors who are anti-capitalist. You know, you can be anti-capitalist from reading books. It doesn't mean you're gonna go out and kill someone. Uh, so of course, this is just yet another step in trying to stop and sideline uh, freedom of speech, freedom of you know press, posting things online. Uh, you know, independent journalists are being uh, attacked. And of course, this, the biggest one that everyone knows is Julian Assange, one of the most uh, impressive and successful journalists of our time, someone who never published anything false. I mean, think about that. WikiLeaks has never published anything false. Compare that to any other mainstream outlet who they published and retract things endlessly on a daily basis. So this is someone who only published the truth and has now been tortured uh, two years in prison, seven years in basically one room in the Ecuadorian embassy. So a total of over nine years. And, and the you know, latest thing that happened this week is that the other key witness against Assange has now admitted that he was lying. So everything against Assange has collapsed and yet they keep him in prison. And, you know, that was initially thanks to the Trump administration, but now it's the Biden administration. So anyone who thinks Biden is somehow more just or moral, uh, if, if he wants to even pretend to be, he's got to release Julian Assange immediately. Yeah, I had a I had a very, very short thought about, you know, maybe since the Obama administration decided not to go after him, that Biden might. No, no, no. And I, I, before I got to the end of the thought, I stopped it. It was just like, it just, oh, get that shit out of here. So, yeah, 
the Obama administration decided not to go after him because of something they termed the New York Times problem. And the New York Times problem was that there's nothing to differentiate what Assange did and what the New York Times does. In fact, they used WikiLeaks uh, releases in their reporting. So did The Guardian, so did Washington Post. So for, you, for, for them to arrest and imprison Assange is basically saying anybody writing for The New York Times is equivalently criminal. Uh, so they've tried to make it different than The New York Times by getting this false witness who has now just admitted he was lying, uh, a longtime fraudster who has all other kinds of criminal uh, complaints and cases against him and just lied to get uh, free, you know, to get off other charges, unrelated charges. So he agreed to lie for the FBI against Assange. And, you know, that's all been revealed. And that's what they did to try and make it seem like it's different than the New York Times. But in fact, there is no difference, except that Assange has always been correct. Yeah, I, I, uh, I was really uplifted that they chose not to extradite him. But of course, it, it was only because of one little shred of, of dignity that that court system has in terms of seeing the condition the man is in, the condition that the, that the UK government and our government have been absolutely hand in hand with. It's, it's, it's fucking disgusting. Yeah, they basically, basically the judge uh, agreed with everything that the U.S. Department of Justice put forward, which was all lies uh, combined with bullshit heaped on top of uh, crap. And they, the judge agreed with all of it and just said, we won't extradite him because U.S. prisons are uniquely horrible and he may kill himself. And that was the only reason she didn't uh, extradite him. So... The U.S. is it shows the U.K. the U.K. system court system is as corrupt and as you know uh, pathetic uh, in their judgment as the U.S. system would be if he were extradited here. He's facing 175 years for telling all of us the truth about the wars that were being done in our name. I don't even think the the sentencing guidelines for Derek Chauvin would allow him to be put in jail for that long. Right. And yet they're doing it to Julian. Uh, it's freaking horrific. Um, so Lee, uh, um, I wanted to ask you about a, a subject, a person that is is very uh, I, I I hold very highly, and that is George Carlin. Um, George Carlin was was someone that his his comedy, you know, made me a skeptical person back before I was as skeptical as I am today. But in terms of really going after what what people are are, are doing, you know, like I, I uh, his uh, his sketch about the Gulf War and us wanting to go play with our toys in the sand, and and, and he he did that, you know, it's in a childish voice, let's go play with our toys in the sand. And that's what we did. You know, that, that I mean, there no one was helped. Thousands of people died. Many more Iraqis than Americans, to, to, uh, to be sure. Um, but I, uh, you, you also have a, um, a connection to George Carlin, both through your comedy and, and through uh, uh, Brenda, of knowing, knowing uh, his daughter. And, and I'd, I'd love to hear you share a little bit about that. 
Uh, yeah, Kelly, Kelly Carlin. Kelly, excuse uh, me, sorry. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, uh, Kelly's been amazing. She's she's uh, a wonderful woman. She uh, everybody immediately asks, is she a comedian? Uh, no, she she has done a one woman show on uh, what it was like to to grow up in that family, and she also has a book out, uh, uh, which people could check out if they want to hear her life story. Uh, but yeah, it. Um, she came up to me after I was I was on the set of taping a show uh, with Paul Provenza, another amazing uh, guy, uh, kind of a mentor of mine back in the day. And in it, he played my Fox News clip where I was on Fox News one time in 2008 and I called them a parade of propaganda and a festival of ignorance. And they were not expecting that. And they they then told their audience that they after the commercial break, that they had kicked me out of the building physically remove me, which wasn't true, but that they needed to tell their audience, you know, anybody who tells the truth on our airwaves will be kicked out of the building. Any, anyway, they played that clip and Kelly came up to me after the taping. She was there and said, you remind me of my father. And, and, uh, and so I talked to her about that and, and, you know, we, we had a, a little friendship and, uh, I asked if she would do kind of a opening thing at my, uh, uh, taping of my stand-up special and so she came and did that and and yeah she's she's an amazing woman who's really uh taken it upon herself to keep her dad's legacy going and uh it's been uh, you know an honor to know her. i actually saw her for the first time in a few years just the other just a couple of weeks ago and uh and in terms of him you know he was i never met him never knew him but he was uh pivotal in my comedy he showed me uh, once I did start kind of waking up more and realizing that I wanted to put uh, the, the the type of comedy that makes people, some people cringe, makes some people walk out of the room, makes some people uncomfortable. Once I started realizing I wanted to do more of that instead of observational uh, comedy, uh, he was definitely someone that was an inspiration. I saw what was possible. I saw, you know, how willing he was to to scare people, to alienate people who didn't get it. And you, you kind of got to have a lot of a lot of nerve to want to get on a stage, want to make people laugh, but also be willing to to piss them off. Also be willing to to people who are who are fully indoctrinated and not willing to hear the, the, these type of things will, you know, they will walk out. And, and that was kind of initially against my goals, because my goal is to make everybody laugh. But I, I, I realized that, you know, to, to really get those laughs where where people are scared, where people start to, to start to realize the truth uh, was what I really wanted to go for. And actually to, to a little more answer, I, I guess I've kind of answered, but to a little more answer your question, Nate, um, you know, I, I, once I started getting involved a little in activism and stuff, I, I'd say one big moment that kind of radicalized me because it made me realize what, it, it made me realize how dumb our leaders were, but also, how a handful of people could have a large change, could, could create large change, was there was a prisoner who was going to be executed in Texas named Kenneth Foster. And unlike every death penalty case you've probably ever heard, even the prosecution said he had not killed anyone. He had not killed anyone. They said he was driving a car. His friend got out, got in a fight, killed someone in the fight, and then he drove off with the friend. And so they uh, were putting, they were, they were, I think they'd already executed the guy who committed the murder and now they wanted to kill the guy who drove the car, uh, even though 
it wasn't any kind of planned murder or anything like that. But in Texas, which I think is the only state where they allow this, you're, they're allowed to execute somebody who did not kill someone. And it was about four days from his execution and very few people were talking about it. I mean, it got it, some activism. There were some amazing activists in Texas who were sitting in Rick Perry's driveway and shit like that. But I was in New York at the time and I called the, the governor to say, don't execute this guy. And, you know, of course you get a secretary and uh, she, she said, okay, I'll add you to the tally. Like it. And I was like, tally, like, yeah. like, Literally, she's sitting there at a phone going, okay, one person says kill him, one says don't. Like, it, it seems so meaningless and so pathetic and so weak. And I was like, there's got to be, even being in New York while this is going on in Texas, there's got to be some way I can have a little more impact. So like a day later, I called back and I said, and I had a whole lie planned out. I said, I'm with a film crew. Uh, you know, I, and I made up a fake cinema, I made a fake, fake production company that sounded real. And I said, we're doing a, a film on the death of a documentary on the death of Kenneth Foster. And uh, we want to interview Rick Perry about, you know, why, why uh, Kenneth Foster needed to be executed. And, and, you know, she clearly bought it. She said, she oh, she put me through the press secretary. And then I told her the whole story. And she says, okay, well, I'll have to ask the governor and we'll get back to you. What's the, uh, how can we reach you? And I said, well, the, the uh, email for the, the film is bloodontexashands.com. Uh, info at bloodontexashands.com. And, and she seemed a little shocked and then asked me how to spell it. And, and, you know, of course I never got an email, but the, I'm, I'm, about 100% positive she brought it to the governor because that's her job. If a documentary is going to be done about Rick Perry, you're, the governor, you're going to go tell him it's being done. And so I think that that, along with these activists in Texas, and, and you know, there were some other people speaking out, but it wasn't like a national story. And anyway, uh, Rick Perry commutes the guy's sentence, and it's one of a handful of people that he commuted because Rick, Rick Perry executed more people than George Bush as governor of Texas. Yeah. Um, loved killing people, but he, he, he saved Kenneth Foster's life. And so I know it wasn't just me, but it, it felt like a small number of people can have an impact, can save a life. And, and that was, it was pivotal to me because it, it, it made me feel like these small acts have an impact in a way that, yeah. that is yeah. much larger than just, you know, having an argument with your neighbor and it, it kind of changed it because it, it felt like if you can have that impact, then you should do it. And, uh, that, that to me, that felt pretty pivotal. Yeah. And I feel like that's, that's a message that needs to be out in the world now more than ever. Uh, there seems to be a lack of hope in the zeitgeist right now. And yeah. when people feel like they have power and control over their, their destiny or that of the nation. It's, uh, it's going to be better for everyone's mental health in general, and hopefully we'll move that needle. So, yeah, that's a great example. Thank you. And I just want to ask, what was his skin color? Oh, black, of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, the, I, I, I used to do a lot of work on the death penalty, trying to end the death penalty. Of course, we're one of only a few countries that still actively does it. Uh, and the number one determinant of whether someone gets executed and I think a lot of people assume it's just, oh, well, skin color if they're black. But no, the key, the key factor is race of the victim. 
because apparently killing a black person in our society doesn't really matter that, that you know, well, I mean, they'll lock you up, but they won't execute you because it's not as big. In, in, apparently in the eyes of our society, of our country, killing a black person is not that big a deal, but killing a white person is much more substantial. So the number one determinant is race of the victim, which is just another factor of how racist it is. Obviously, black people are also more likely to be executed, et cetera. But I saw they're bringing back the shooting squads. Did you hear hear that? I forget what states it was, but southern yeah. states, as you can imagine. <laughs> yeah, a few states. I think Idaho might have been one of them. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's disgusting uh, on so many levels. But the reason they're doing that is because other countries refused to sell us the drugs to execute people with lethal injection because they found out they were we were using it for that. So now, oh, interesting. So states are running out of the lethal injection drugs which is also still cruel and unusual. I mean, they act like it's somehow better. It's still horrific. Right. <laughs> and so now they're switching to, to things like firing squads. I mean, it, it's, so, it's so unimaginably barbaric. Every argument that people come forward for the death penalty breaks down if you just think about it for three seconds. I mean, people will say, oh, well, an eye for an eye. And I'm like, that is not how we legislate any other law, any other crime in our country, if you're if you rape someone, you are not sentenced to be raped. If you set someone's house on fire, you don't have your house burned down. We don't even do an eye for an eye in the case of someone stealing someone's eye. So why would we only do it for death? It's so ridiculous. And yet these are like the arguments that people resort to. I'd have to imagine there's an economic argument as well. Like we don't want to pay to have this person mm -hmm. in prison for life. It's cheaper just to kill them. Like, is that an you, argument you've heard? You, you are correct. That argument yeah. comes up and that argument okay. also incorrect. Yeah. It's often more expensive to execute them because of the legal proceedings. Interesting. The mandatory appeals and everything often end up with, you know, high powered lawyers, many cases, many years. So actually executing someone is often more expensive than keeping them in prison. I wasn't fighting for that argument. I was no, just I know, bringing I know. it up because it's ludicrous. It's a ludicrous way to think. Even if it were, yeah, because yeah, yeah. the other the other is, even if it were more expensive to keep them alive in prison, how disgusting is it to point out that like one penny from each taxpayer, rather rather than keep someone alive, let's, you know, and pay one penny a year from each taxpayer, let's just kill them. I mean, that idea is so gross. Yeah, yeah. So Lee, I uh, we're we're just just past the forty-five minute mark. I, I yep. want to be be mindful of your time. Um, we uh, we're going to chat about Nate's uh, project, but you're welcome to stick around if you'd like to uh, if you'd like to hear about it. I'm excited to to hear about it. I, I do have to run to another uh, another thing, but I, I really do appreciate you guys having me on, and Thanks, uh, I, I hope you'll uh, I hope you'll keep in touch and and keep doing what you do. Absolutely, we will uh, we will definitely do this again sometime. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. All right. Talk Thanks, Lee. Great to see you. Our podcast is supported in a few different ways. First, there's Patreon, where we're blessed to have an array of wonderful supporters helping the guys and I pay for some of the podcast's expenses. Those who contribute $10 a month or more will be mentioned right here as an honorary producer, helping keep you, our listeners, stocked with new episodes. 
but you don't have to contribute $10 a month to help us. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help keep us going, paying for hosting and storage fees, transcribing all the new episodes, promoting and expanding the podcast, and more I'm sure I can't think of at the moment. So let's bring out our honorary producers, and they are Will Arends, Fahim Shirazi, James Obar, Adam Bellows, Eric Phillips, Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, Thomas Benson, Janet Hansen, Tristan Oliver, Daniel Fleming, Michael Karen, Zach H., Ren Jacob, Howard Reynolds, Why I Am Anti-War Podcast, Scott Spaulding, Kenneth Cordasco, Korgoth, and the Status Quo Podcast. Your contributions are wonderfully helpful to us. Thank you so much. However, if Patreon isn't your style, you can contribute directly to us through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Fortress on a Hill. Or please check out our awesome store on Spreadshirt.com for some great Fortress merch. The link is in the show notes. And now, let's get back to the podcast. All righty, Nate. Just you and me, man. Yeah, cool, Henry. So, uh, tell me, tell me about this project, and 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 uh, give me a, a little bit of background on how you came to decide to do it, if you don't mind. Yeah. So the the project is I'm actually going to provide paid artistic residencies for post 9/11 writers. So I've got a studio apartment on my property. And I'm just going to make it available for five month uh, residencies. And I'm uh, raising donations right now uh, so that we can give the writers a stipend. So, you know, I wrote a book when I got out of the military. It was super healing for my like mental health and just my process of, uh, you know, I tell people I was spiritually constipated and I just had to move it out of me to, to move on. And if I can make that a process available to other writers, uh, veterans. Um, that's a worthy use of my time and resources. And I am looking for like a specific type of writer, but I'm realizing that the community is not that big of veteran writers. So uh, anyone that applies at the website, um, I'll, I'll definitely give a fair look. So the name of the program is Veteran Artist Residencies, and uh, you can find it online at veteranarts.org. And there's a few ways to help. Uh, we're doing a Patreon-like uh, blog subscription. So for now, I'm managing the blog and I'm writing articles. I, I just released an article called The Useful Idiot, which actually got uh, a pretty big response. It was, uh, I, I released it at 6 a.m. Saturday morning and within an hour, I had two messages like, dude, that that article shook me. You know, <laughs> I just kind of looked I looked at the origins of the Iraq war and like what Lee was talking about. Some of the looked behind some of the messaging that we we're all getting and then just explored the idea of like, well, if someone joined the military because of that messaging, which was a lie, then by definition, that would make them a useful idiot, which is a political uh, terminology for someone who is manipulated 
to advance a political cause. So it's definitely an uncomfortable thing to look at, but it's an idea that came to me and I thought it was worth exploring. And I'm going to use the blog for multiple things, but one of, one of the aspects I'm looking forward to is when I do have a veteran working in that space, uh, they're going to share their creative process. They're going to share uh, if they're comfortable with it, like their work as they're working on it. They're going to share what's going on with uh, their inner world as they have suddenly have this five-month span where they're not worried about survival, making money, all this stuff. And um, there should I'm hoping there's some powerful transformations in that container that I, I'm trying to make available for them. Uh, I'm going to introduce them to yoga. Yoga is a thing that really helped me. I got, I got deep into it. It's, uh, it's, it regulates the nervous system, which there's, there's science behind all of it. And a lot of people hear yoga, they're like, oh, that's for girls and just get flexible or whatever. But there's a long history of, uh, uh, like ascetic monks, in in the lowlands and the mountains of India, uh, using this discipline to train their mind, and we know how much the mind is an issue for a lot of veterans, especially when they come home. So I'm going to try to introduce that to any veterans that are on site if if it's something that appeals to them. So I've got that blog. I've got you know I'm trying to make it fun for people. I've got these. Uh, uh, Fund art, not war stickers. So nice. uh, people donate. Uh, I'm saying fifty dollars or more, but you guys can send me a message if you donate. And you, you don't have the the means to hit fifty dollars. Just send me a message, and I'll mail those out to anyone who donates. And people can contact me directly about any of this stuff. Um, Instagram is my preferred platform. It's at nbhankus, and they can find me there. And then, of course, 50% of my book sales have been going towards a nonprofit. And that's really the only reason I was able to get it launched in the first place. You had me on for the book originally, waking up on the Appalachian Trail. And uh, so 50% of sales go to that. That's that's the book I was referring to that I wrote where, realistically, I didn't understand like my inner emotional world. I didn't understand any of the issues that were you know, causing me to suffer or causing me to um, just run into troubles, basically tripping on my own feet in life. And I use that writing process just kind of to grow up in the dark as I'm exploring all these ideas and concepts. And I attribute that to um, part of my, uh, I want to say I had like a transformation, transformational experience. And it was definitely uh, facilitated through that writing process. Another way people can uh, participate is just subscribe to the mailing list. And you'll get an update on, hey, this is who we're talking to. This is when we think we'll have a veteran out. This is how many, uh, I'm, I'm going to keep track of how many words have been written over the course of this uh, mission. And uh, it's a li it's limited in scope. So I'm, I don't want to dedicate my life uh, specifically to this mission. I've got more books inside of me that I want to write. And I'm looking for four veterans. That's my goal is to help four veterans. And uh, my unofficial mission with selecting veterans is I'm looking for the next Kurt Vonnegut. You know, are you, you've read some Kurt? I have. It's amazing. 
Yeah. yeah so, so he was this guy who came onto the scene after World World War II, and like Lee, like George Carlin, just started poking holes and asking questions. I just showed people a side of uh, America, foreign policy, capitalism that maybe they weren't used to hearing about in the mainstream conversation. So, you know, the writers don't have to be super uh, radical or anything. I'm, I'm just looking for people that are um, a voice of reason, uh, people that have something to say. You know, I know how hard it is to be grinding on a book when you've got, when you're trying to manage everything else. So I think the one of the greatest gifts as a writer that could be given is that freedom to create. And that's what we're trying to do uh, with this program. Will you um, give me the uh, your email address and the name of the website again, please? Yeah, um, the name of the website is veteranarts.org. And then, okay. and then do you want my, I don't know if I want to give out my email address, but I, I can do my Instagram and the people can oh, DM sure, me sure. on there. Yeah. So that's at NB Hankus. And then just going to that website is where you can read more about uh, different ways you can contribute or participate. And um, I've been, I've been a, uh, really impressed since I launched the program and started publicizing it. I've been digging more into like the veteran literary scene. And of course, Danny, uh, you guys are friends with Christian Sorensen. He's a voice out there. I'm trying to get him out here. His, uh, I think that'd be, I'm reading his book now and he's so prolific and such an astute researcher. I, I can only imagine what he could accomplish with free five months, just free. So absolutely. Yeah. Anyone, anyone who's on this, uh, you know, the fortress on a hill family that's got the ear of Christian, you should really, <laughs> you should really tell him to come out here. Um, I, th I think he could accomplish a lot. But. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely book him about it. Yeah. Um, so that's what we're trying to do. Like I said, four veterans, five months, and uh, any of the donations are essentially going straight into the veteran's pocket so that they don't have to have that survival anxiety about money while they're staying. And that Patreon, I've got, uh, I've only been talking to about friends and on my personal social media, which isn't huge. And so I've got like eight people on there. If I could get 132 people, that would pay for the entire mission. And since it's a limited scope, it'd just be a two-year commitment for anyone who's subscribing. And you'd be, you'd have full access to the journey, what we're accomplishing here. And uh, you'd, you'd get to see how the sausage is made if you're into writing. So that uh, I think that'd be pretty interesting for folks. What's your uh, Patreon username? It's not it's not Patreon. It's it's a platform called Ghost. I just say Patreon because people kind of know what that is. Sure, so, sure. So they can just find it on uh, the website. Okay. And there's there's a link to it there. It kind of gives them a list of ways they can support it. But I think it's cool. I think we can, uh, you know, advance the mission of the cause. We can 
uh, hopefully launch some veterans and a career on writing. You know, if they have that time to focus, you know, that that's that's enough time to master a manuscript if you're diligent and work hard at it. So I think that could be very good for for anyone who's interested. And I'm looking for people to apply. And you can do that at that website, veteranarts.org. You don't necessarily have to be published. I just want to see some evidence that someone's been, you know, sharpening their blade for a few years um, to get over some of those rookie rookie hurdles and that if they come on site they'll be ready to hit the ground and uh, create their masterpiece that's going to change the 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 mind of the nation you know that's what i'm trying to to accomplish i i would imagine that it would probably be you know the first few years after getting out of the military there's uh there's kind of a haze, you know, you're trying to get readjusted. You're trying to decide what you're going to do career wise, yeah. politically wise, you know, there, there's so many questions. Um, I could see that, that, you know, trying to do something like your project after a few years might bring someone a little easier time putting thought on the page, yeah. but also I could also see the benefit of, of somebody doing it real quickly after they got out of service that they because there's there's a lot of stuff that we you know as we move further and further away from wearing the uniform um you know we 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 forget things we we don't see the institution in quite the same way yeah. Yeah. um as, as we do as veterans you know it it's uh so i could i could see either of those those situations it could you know depending on the person but um i mean there's plenty of uh people i'm finding in the vet literary scene that are still in uniform and they're starting to get into it because they're seeing all these other veterans out there writing writing and you know they can relate to the words that are being written and i would i actually think that if someone got out of the military and directly came into an opportunity like this that uh you know those two years you were talking about those few years of getting adjusted I feel like that could cause a lot of psychological damage. So that could, you know, just get beat up a little bit and trying to figure it out and you get more lost and confused. So yeah. I feel like uh, if they were able to come, you know, shortly after separation from service, which would realistically be a great time for someone to relocate, uh, yeah. you know, just a five month stop off to get to your next location, uh, that would probably uh, be super helpful in their development. And like you said, in the, the writing as well and if i have to sell it a little more uh my house is like 10 minutes from some of the most beautiful beaches in america on the uh, coast too look, yeah, yeah just look up trinidad california and some of the pictures that'll show up will just uh blow your mind and that's that's my backyard so I, i'm trying to make a sweet deal for for veterans and we're just gonna have to find veterans that you know fits in the shape of their life i'm talking to uh Right now, I'm talking to one veteran. Uh, she's won awards for writing scripts, and you know she's she's interested. And we're just gonna see, you know, if an opportunity like this can fit with her life, and you know, be interesting to see the kind of output that someone who's been in the in the game for quite a while could, you know, what they can produce with with that amount of time just to create, just that freedom to let their mind roam. The thoughts expand a little bit. You have a little deeper thoughts or more penetrating insights. So that's what I'm trying to. 
that's the container I'm trying to create. Sounds great, dude. It, it, it really does. If, if Have I, you? Yeah, go ahead. If I was if I was a maybe on on trying to come before being on the beach is a is a yeah <laughs> you just put <laughs> me over it's helpful um, yeah. oh yeah yeah um, no it, that's um, you know what you mentioned about people still being in and, and you know like you know Danny Danny wrote you know his first book and many of his much of his writing um, came while he was still in service and and I'm sure that you know those connections there were lots of articles in terms of, you know, the, the officers he had served with and, and kind of his observations of them as, as time went on, but you, you, you lose touch on those things so quickly, not in just in yeah. terms of your memory, but in terms of people, because, you know, not everybody, you're not Facebook friends with everyone. Right. Um, so, um, and also I wanted to take just a second and, and plug your book because the, it, it is, it is a really great, uh, it's a really great piece of work. It's, 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 uh, you know, the, the journey that you take, um, hiking on the Appalachian trail. And that just, just so everybody knows is that the native yeah. uh, buddy of his hiked the entire Appalachian trail. And this is his, his process of it, how, you know, getting up, getting up the first few Hills and deciding that certain things were too heavy and getting rid of them. And, and, you know, but, but there's, there's so much more to it. There's such as a, a deep journey over literally over thousands of miles. And uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I will, uh, I'll make sure to add a, uh, a link for it in the, yeah. uh, in the, in the notes for the, for the live stream so everybody can uh, take a, can take a look. Yeah. I appreciate you taking the time to read that. I know as a host, people are coming on promoting things and I was pretty, I was honored that, you read it, <laughs> you know, and it, oh it is, it is a journey within a journey. Um, I basically met someone like Lee when I was hiking the trail and he's blowing my mind with all these things and, uh, you know, talking about Chomsky and what his was name that was Patrick. Name? Patrick. Patrick. Uh, in the book, it's Dylan. In real life, it's Patrick. I just wanted to give him a little <laughs> protection there, but, you know, he'd read all the books that, had the type of information that I intuitively needed. Uh, he had these two long braids, you know, he'd openly talk about smoking marijuana, which coming from conservative small town Midwest, it's like, this is an exotic character <laughs> <laughs> and, and being in the military, you know, and there's a part of me when I was in the military, it was, um, I was, a unmanned aerial vehicle operator for four years, did one deployment in Baghdad, Iraq. But I uh, I really wanted to be free, you know, when you're in the military, you know, boots, shave, uniform, they tell you where to be. And I was just like uh, glamorizing this idea of freedom. And here comes this guy, this Dylan character in my book. And he, he basically like, personified that and I was really intrigued because the first time we met he's talked about a, a canoe trip he took down the Mississippi River from source in Minnesota just canoed all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico and I thought this guy's interesting and then throughout the book we keep bumping into this character uh, he'll mention things and then I'll go like oh I should I should ask him about that the next time I see him if I do and you know the the conversation progressively goes deeper and he starts uh, revealing some things 
that are hard for me to accept, but you know, intuitively I'm like, that's, that's the truth. And it does hurt me on the inside because I based a lot of my decisions leading up to joining the military on information that just wasn't accurate, which I think a lot of people are, uh, opening up to, I know Tulsi Gabbard, when she was on the stage, she's like, we were lied to like what, you know, so, uh, and like I said, the, the whole process of that book was just uh, one of self-discovery, self-inquiry, uh, self-exploration, figuring out what I believe, figuring out, um, kind of exercising some of those demons that lay hidden in your subconscious. And yeah, it was, it's medicine. And I think based on some of the reactions that I've gotten from the book, um, from veterans, have been very positive and then just from people who you know they don't have a lee in their life they don't have a henry in their life they don't have a danny um and they say hey this really shook my foundational understanding <laughs> of reality and uh i'm gonna have to take some time to process and for me that's like a that's what i was trying to do and those are the types of messages that i really appreciate hearing so thanks for letting me talk about the book a bit oh of course no like i said it is a it is a it's a great read and uh and uh you know the people get to go on a journey with you as you're going through all of this and, and questioning things that you had never questioned before um you know my my um i don't know if we'd want to call them latent beliefs or whatever that we'd see them as but they're there are days, you know, either I'm reading or I'm making, you know, something for the podcast or recording the podcast and I read something or generally it's Danny says something yeah. and it does it to me again. It yeah. does, you know, the same thing is that I, I and I just realized is that my my um, how narrow a single person, a single person serving in the military's view is because of what they end up doing. And, you know, that the and, and it, it's, you know, the military is such a big organism and we all want to think of ourselves as unique. You know, we're in unique units and we're not as good as the other guys units. Um, but I, I am I'm glad that I'm still honest enough with myself that those things happen. And it's like, wow, I never heard that before. That was, a, you know, and, and I, I keep thinking them. they're all things that I wish were in the recruiting pamphlet. Of course, no one would join the military if they were in the pamphlet. <laughs> have it a, an example off the top of your head? Just something that, is it just like Danny saying? I remember like, we were we were talking to um, Abner. Um, I can't, I can't I can never remember how to pronounce his last name right, but he's the uh, executive director of Breaking the Silence. And he's a former member of the Israeli Defense Force, and his uh, the breaking the silence. They uh, they collect testimonies from former IDF personnel about operations in the Palestinian territories. And we were talking about. He mentioned, and I don't remember the specific name that they used, but it was it was for an operation where they would set up an observation post in a person's home, and they would literally go to the door, kick everyone out of the house do whatever they did to the house and whatever was left there the people could have back i guess and he was mentioning that and i, I pointed it out as like wow that's that's just 
really awful to me. And Danny mentioned is like, you know, this is something that I did too. This is something that he as a cavalry officer with his troops would do as well, you know, in terms of literally taking a person's home and sometimes giving them nothing in return for whatever happened. You know, um, there's also the the one that just comes off the top of my head is about um, uh, Joe Kasabian from Lions Led by Donkeys talks about in the in the early part of his book about being on a walking patrol in Afghanistan. And there's a gentleman there and he's serving ice cream. And one of the other NCOs that's there part of his squad, um, I don't think he was actually in Joe's squad, but um, he was, you know, they, I don't remember what the how they were set up at that moment. But anyways, he goes over, somebody had mentioned something about wanting some ice cream, a different soldier, and he goes over and he just takes it and just takes uh, the ice yeah. cream from the guy. And, you know, it, it, Joe mentioned in talking about the book that most people laugh and found that funny not thinking about that you were literally stealing the man's ability to feed his family to take care of himself yeah. doing that and yes it's a small thing ice cream is a, is a small thing but it's certainly representative of the larger losses that we put on people because it all compounds you know yeah. even if you live in a place like that even if your whole family wasn't hurt you know it it, it it's still you watch your this is what happens to your fellow countrymen because these americans came and they said they wanted to help and they aren't helping but they also might kill us and so we have to stand way back because we don't know what the fuck's going to happen right want to make and it to the other that, side when you're talking about the israeli palestine we did have operations uh, where we would observe from the sky um where there'd be snipers u.s snipers on like residential rooftops and i was assumed like oh maybe they're just uh, abandoned houses but now no nope. it makes perfect sense they just pulled whoever was in the house out and there were also times where um no due process uh we would see someone like that looks like a suspicious package uh oftentimes when they were crossing the boundaries um, or avoiding the checkpoints uh, to get into Baghdad, which, you know, it's definitely suspicious. And we just blow up their car and blow up their house. Like once we saw them get up and you're like, well, I don't know if I, how I feel about that. And there was another time where in this real agricultural area of the city where we had wiped out some sort of bridge and we had we saw a piece of heavy equipment was putting the bridge back in place and i'm assuming it was for commerce or hauling crops and we as a military we're the hammer everything we see looks like a nail i just i just saw a guy who wanted to get back to work and we we blew up the heavy equipment and it's like dang it like how hard is it to get a piece of heavy equipment in uh baghdad iraq almost and, impossible yeah, yeah. <laughs> especially with all the sanctions that had been going on for so long and uh yeah some of those things you you think about when you're when you're a young kid and you don't understand what it means to support yourself or even like geopolitics at all why you're even there you just assume they're all terrorists uh <laughs> like you don't really think about it but after the fact it's like man 
that didn't that didn't feel good to, yeah to your point and well sometimes it's 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 even even just lack of imagination you know uh um clint lawrence has mentioned in 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 I, I hate saying his name but um he has mentioned that uh he didn't think that the taliban had family members he didn't think that the these fighters you know the, the terrorists and stuff that they had mothers and fathers and wives and kids and he it, it just it wasn't within his scope of understanding based on everything that he was told about them up to that point and you know he expected to walk into a, a a battle literal battle i'm sure in his in his mind of these just um absolutely horrific terrorists who you know take take no you know take no quarter and torture the people that they they get and um not that not that isis hasn't hasn't done that at certain times but it has to be understood that, that everybody has a reason there's a reason all those guys are willing to pick up those rifles and shoot at Americans. There's a reason that that the Iraqis are so absolutely and just and uh, should be they're beyond fucking enraged about the recent drone strikes that have been happening there. That we continually choose to say you have no sovereignty, you have no personal sovereignty, you have no national sovereignty. We can we can choose at any time just to take it away, and we have to get past that notion as Americans, and it's it's very deeply embedded in us, and I don't know that we ever will, but that is all you have to do is go on Facebook and see people's memes that they post about a variety of these different yeah. different things. Um, to so. to to your point. Uh, you know, even when you said Taliban, I was like, ooh, I'd, I would never, like, in my head, I would never defend the, that. I just really haven't studied it. But then when you stepped back, it's like, oh, yeah, why are they upset at America? Like, yeah, yeah. It's probably our foreign policy or something we've done to them that uh, is the reason they're fighting. And I, I do believe that there are ideals. Um, worth fighting for like lee camp he's fighting for the truth yeah, um, and yeah. i think there are deals worth fighting for i think a lot of people um who are on the fence or you know maybe they're getting really one-sided narrative of what it means to be of that race or uh, from those regions but i have to believe that most people in their mind believe that what they're supporting and defending is like the morally correct thing so then it does come down to educators and educating ourselves like in that taliban instance i don't know what i think I'm, i mean i know that uh they probably have a reason to be mad and i know that uh like i don't want them attacking people here so wh where does that come i i was you know for all his faults i was happy to see um the Trump administration opening up to talks with the Taliban like that, that seemed like a progress to me. And I don't know if you guys have covered this already, but, um, yeah, Trump seemed like he was against getting into any new wars. I felt like if Hillary was in office, we would have followed through with Iran, which was the plan, um, that general Wesley Clark, 
spoke of um, in his memoir. And then when he was running for president, he was basically saying that shortly after 9-11, he went to the Pentagon and a report was circulating that they planned to uh, invade Iraq and then, you know, Somalia, Sudan, ending with Libya was on that list, which has come to pass. And then it all ended with Iran. Syria, I think, was on that yep, list, too. Yep, yeah. So, and you see, they did it. They followed through with the plan, except for Iran. And if you look at that plan, uh, a lot of those refugees from, you know, those missions that we accomplished over there, uh, if you want to say accomplished, uh, they led to... Uh, refugee crises in the EU. So, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty dirty that not only do we destroy the, the country and make, turn it into a failed state, but then we block our nation to, you know, the refugees from those actions, which obviously it probably wouldn't be a good move to bring people into your country after you <laughs> destroy their country. But um, yeah, it's, it's just, it seems pretty dark and short-sighted and, and, uh, I don't know how many people actually know about it. So I talk about it. No, I, th I think it's good, man. I think, you know, we, we, we have to talk about it and, until we don't talk until we know it so well that we don't need to, you know, yeah. that it's, it's actually a part of our, our lived culture, which, which it isn't, um, so, uh, Nate, I think that's a good place for us to yeah, uh, wrap it up for today. Um, thank you again for, for joining us, for joining our discussion with Lee. Um, is uh, anything that, any last comments, anything you want to leave leave the people with? Yeah, I just want to let them know I'm, I'm accessible through Instagram. Um, they can, you know, if anything I said is interesting or if they want to know more, they can just re DM me on there and I'm more than happy to uh, walk them through the application process if they're a veteran that's interested or if they want to know how to like some older folks aren't comfortable donating stuff online so they're like hey what's your address i want to send a donation that way so yeah i'm, I'm accessible and if anyone's interested in writing uh, follow my journey as well and at nb hankus on instagram and I'm, I'm looking forward to meeting some new folks so I appreciate you opening it up and having me in on the conversation with Lee and uh, just diving in a little bit deeper. I wasn't sure what we were going to talk about, but it was a pretty fun conversation. So hey, that's 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 the beauty of Fortress on a Hill. We we never know where we're going to go. We perfect. Usually always start with the plan, but sometimes the plan, <laughs> yeah, the plan sucks halfway through and you gotta you gotta change it up. But just, that's, just that's like really being fun. in the military. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you, man. All right. You take I care. Appreciate dude. it. It's good to see you, Henry. Good to see you too. All right, everybody. That's going to be the uh, end of our stream today. Um, I'm really grateful to Lee and to Nate for uh, joining us and, and uh, being involved in our discussion. Um, you'll please, uh, you'll find us at the, the usual places on, uh, on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill. Um, actually they're all up to the top of the stream. <laughs> Um, and uh, YouTube, Instagram, Twitch, all those kind of places. Um, and uh, we hope to see you guys again soon. Take care.
We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill and also at Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Patreon, Spotify. You name it, almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. And if you're not into giving us a monthly payment, think about giving us a couple bucks on PayPal. The link is in the show. Good people. Skepticism is one's best armor. Never forget it. We'll see you next time. I hope you'll pay attention. I will not be.